This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is Psalm 85. Lord, you are favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turn from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning. Uh, I'm Ted Sin, and I'm excited to be back in the swing of things after uh, an incredible uh, sabbatical that was given to us uh, by the church. Uh, And not only am I excited to be back, but I'm grateful and honored to be preaching Uh, to you all this morning. Uh, Here's how I want us to get started. Here's how I want us to begin uh, to think about Psalm 85, this psalm that we read eight days ago in the Community Bible Reading Initiative, this psalm that that captured uh, a thread in this psalm, a truth in this psalm uh, that really captured uh, my mind and my heart and caused me to think uh, now for eight days straight about it. This is how I want us to to get into it. Uh, I want us to think metaphorically uh, about a muscle cramp. Uh, Think about a muscle cramp, whether it's in the bottom of your foot or in your leg or maybe a spasm in your back. Uh, Think about that cramp uh, and and what it feels like, uh, either through the right stretch or through the right shift in posture, what it feels like to finally get the tension of that cramp uh, relieved and and dealt with and resolved. Uh, It feels great. Uh, Think about this. We have a rental house in Lakeland. And uh, last weekend, our tenant called uh, to tell me, in fact, he didn't just call, he texted as well and texted a picture uh, of our refrigerator refrigerator leaking an awful lot of water uh, and pooling up on the hardwood floor in this 90-year-old house, the original pine floor in this historic house. And it's Saturday morning, and there's no repairman that I know that wants to go out on a Saturday morning. And so for 36 hours... There was this new tension, this new suspense, this new drama, this uncertainty brought into my life that no matter what else was going on, either conscious or just below the conscious, my my consciousness, uh, I was was thinking about it. I was worrying about it. I was wondering about it. Uh, He's a renter. It's not even his house. They're not his floors. Uh, What's he going to do about it? What was it like on Monday to finally hear that the fridge is in fact fixed and the floors are not ruined? What's that like? It's like relief. It's it's relaxation. It's like this freedom of that part of my brain that was worrying about it to now go and focus energy 
on other things. Get the point? Tension, resolve, resolution, uh, rejoicing. Uh, How about this? Uh, Last year, my brother had an emergency open skull brain surgery. Uh, Within a couple days of finding out something was wrong, his, his skull was opened up and the surgeons were in there exploring and digging around. And when he came out of the surgery, the, the surgeons called the surgery a wild success, but, but they were utterly convinced that they, they did not remove all of the cancerous tumor, but they were convinced that the tumor was very slow, uh, slow growing, excuse me. And so my brother and my sister-in-law, every three months, travel up to Duke and endure a, a week of tests, a week of scans, a week of results. What's the car ride like for them? Uh, what is it like to uh, sit in uh, the room and, and to lay still and to, to enter into the machine? What's it like to sit in the room and wait for the doctor to come back and tell them the results of this newest scan? Again, it's tension. It's drama. It's suspense. Again, it's this anxiety that's always there, whether it's just below the surface of my consciousness or just screaming for my consciousness. But really what I want to focus on today is what is it like every time so far, thank God, every time so far the doctor comes in and gives a very positive result. What's it like? Relief, relaxation, rejoicing and celebrating, dancing and feasting. Our life in this world is full of suspense and drama and tension. And I think that I think personally, some of the greatest feelings in life come from the resolution of tension. I mean, think about uh, the way sports fans cheer. Do they do they cheer more exuberantly for a buzzer beater or a twenty point victory? The buzzer beater. Uh, do they cheer more exuberantly for the walk off home run at the bottom of the ninth or for in little league the mercy rule to kick in and being up ten to nothing, all the kids go home right? Do we want to see that golfer make that long putt on the 18th hole, that long birdie, or do we want to see him walk up the fairway with an eight-shot lead? The fact is, suspense and drama and tension, when it builds towards a desirable resolution, brings about significant celebration. And that's what Psalm 85 is all about. Tension, resolution, response. But it's not about any average or ordinary run-of-the-mill tension resolution and response. It's about, first, the ultimate tension in a human's life. Second, it's about the ultimate resolution of that tension. And third, it's about the ultimate response to that resolution. Okay, so first, the ultimate tension in a human's life. Regardless of whether or not it's popular or politically correct to say it, regardless of whether or not a person consciously knows it, regardless of whether or not a person can articulate it, the ultimate tension in every human's life is this. Where am I in regards to God's wrath? The ultimate tension is this, whether I'm conscious of it or not, or whether or not I can articulate it. Romans 1 tells me that every one of us has this great tension in our lives. And it is this, at the end of my life, Will God's wrath be upon me or will God's wrath be removed from me and replaced with his favor? And again, if you look at Psalm 85 from 50,000 feet, this is what it's all about. Look at verses four and five. Verse four, uh, restore us again, O God of our salvation 
and put away your indignation towards us. Verse five, will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Now we don't know the exact historical context of of Psalm 85, but it's pretty clear from the Psalm, if you read it through two or three times, it is pretty clear that the nation of Israel is suffering and they're suffering because of their sin. But more specifically, the nation of Israel is suffering because God is angry about their sin. Verse one, verse nine, verse 11, and verse 12, they all indicate that the land is not producing food. But more specifically, the psalmist is indicating that that it's God's judgment. Uh, God's judgment is the reason for the lack of food. That God's indignation towards his people is causing the dwindling of life that, that will result in the lack of future life or will result in death if God doesn't remove his wrath. The Bible is clear. Death is the eventual consequence for pride, rebellion, and self-centeredness. Death is the consequence to a mere mortal who runs from the God of life to look for life apart from that God. In Psalm 85, God's people have sought life apart from him and God's judgment is upon them. Death is slowly but surely coming to them because God is no longer blessing the land and the land is no longer feeding them. But also Psalm 85 makes it clear. This is not the first time that God's people have found themselves in this desperate situation. Look at verse four. Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Verse six, will you not revive us or literally return us to life again? In fact, the Psalm, Psalm 85, starts out recounting a time in the past when God did for his people in the past what's being asked of him in the present. God in the past, verse two, forgave the iniquity of his people and covered all their sin. God in the past, verse three, withdrew his wrath and turned from his hot anger. God in the past, verse one, was favorable to the land and restored his people's fortunes. The original audience had been down this road before. God's wrath in some way had been upon them, removed from them, and is now back on them. And I know it's not always hip and politically correct to talk about God's wrath, uh, to talk about God's holy and aggressive hatred towards evil and pride and idolatry and sin. It's not always easy to talk about God's commitment to remove sin and to remove sinners from his creation. But since one of our goals, maybe our, one of our top three goals for sure at New City, since it is for all of us to continually read the entire Bible through community Bible reading, we have to talk about and we have to teach on and we have to deal with this very biblical topic of God's wrath. If you participated in CBR last Saturday, you encountered five references to God's wrath in three verses. In the Hebrew, actually, the psalmist uses five different words for for this aspect of God's character. The, The same attribute within God is repeated five times in five different ways. And the psalmist is forcing us to consider it, to not skip over it, to not minimize it. If you look in verse three, the the word in our English translations given as wrath, according to one commentator means this, it's a seething and ferocious anger 
that expresses itself in fury and burning. Uh, if you look there at the end of verse three, the, the hot anger that is referenced in our English translations is another Hebrew word for burning and consuming fire. And again, to steady our hearts. Uh, verse three is a recollection of when God withdrew or more literally gathered up his ferocious anger. Verse three is this recollection of when God in the past literally returned to himself his hot anger. Verse three is the reminder that at some point these people repented. At some point, these people sought forgiveness. At some point, these people humbly returned to God and God withdrew or gathered up his wrath back into himself. And so again, verses one through three, bring hope to the hearts of the original audience. But don't miss this fact. These people are experiencing the same deadly wrath and anger and indignation again in their lives because of recent sin. Verse four, restore us again and put away your indignation. Verse six, revive us again. So think about it. Verses one through three, they had sinned. God's wrath came upon them and started to take their life from them. They repented and sought forgiveness and God removed his wrath and gave them favor. And then verses four and following, they sinned again. God's wrath, almost like a faucet, is turned on again. They start to die again. They're back to seeking forgiveness again. They're asking God yet again to gather up his wrath into himself. And while the Psalm is gonna presume that God is going to forgive them and that God is going to deliver his people, look at the end of verse eight. It says, let not his people turn back to folly. That is stupid immorality. Why does the psalmist say that? Presumably because they would be under the lethal heat of God's wrath yet again if they returned to their folly. Do you see the tension that was created in the lives of the original audience? God's wrath was upon me. God's wrath was removed from me. God's wrath was upon me. God's wrath, I hope, will be removed from me. If I return to folly, his wrath will be upon me again. Can you see how this might be the ultimate tension in a human's life? In the end, will I be under God's wrath or under God's favor? At the end of my time on earth, will I, verse five, be forever dying? Or will I, verse 9 through 13, forever flourishing? Can we at least agree that this is the ultimate tension in a human's life? Not whether or not my team wins. Not whether or not my 90-year-old wood floor is ruined. Not whether or not I get that job or get married to that person or, or finally get pregnant. Not even a quarterly brain scan. The ultimate suspense and tension in a human's life is the tension between eternally dying and eternally flourishing. But second, the ultimate resolution of that tension. All right, listen closely. I don't wanna spend a lot of time on the short-term resolution presumed by that original audience in Psalm 85. I wanna focus on the ultimate resolution of that tension, uh, the tension that's created by God's wrath. I wanna focus on the ultimate solution that is evident in Psalm 85 if you know to look for it, but develop more extensively uh, later 
in the scriptures. Okay, said differently, just put all my cards on the table. Jesus and the New Testament teach us that the ultimate way to read Psalm 85 is to not simply understand it in the context of its original audience, but to understand it through the development of the story, to understand it through the lens of the scripture, to understand it through the fulfillment of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Before we focus on that, I want us to look at the short-term resolution that the psalmist presumed in the original audience. If you look down at the psalm, the psalmist clearly believed that the Lord would, number one, forgive this this repentant people, uh, would, number two, withdraw and remove back to himself this deadly wrath, and number three, place his life-giving favor on these people through the land. Look at verse seven. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Verse eight, let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people. Verse nine, surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. So verses seven through nine presume, based on God's character, uh, based on uh, God's uh, past actions, based on God's promises, verses seven through nine presume that God will remove his wrath and revive his people as they repent. But the ultimate resolution of the tension created by a holy God who gets angry over sin is not a resolution where God, verse three, withdraws or gathers up his wrath into himself. The ultimate resolution to that tension is not for him to gather that wrath up into himself, but to completely pour that wrath out of himself, never to be available to him again. Because think, how many of us are gonna be folly-free, sin-free, pride-free, idol-free for the rest of our lives? None. So think about it. Would you rather hear that, there, that there's a bucket under the leak or that the leak was fixed? Would you rather hear that the tumor hasn't grown or, but the, or, or that the tumor is gone? Would you rather get the text, uh, the game is tied, we're moving into overtime or the text, we won the game? Would you rather hear God's not angry right now or God can't get angry with you ever again? The tension created by a holy and right wrath, the holy and right wrath of God was never ultimately resolved until Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, was approved of and loved by the Father and then died on the cross in the place of God's people for their sin. I don't know about you, but as I read the Old Testament in places like Psalm 85 and in Ezekiel where we've been reading this week, I get the sense from the Old Testament that God's wrath, God's angry judgment for sin, I, I get the sense that it could be suspended but never really satisfied. But as the drama develops into the New Testament, as the tension moves into the New Testament, it becomes clear in Jesus, God's wrath is satisfied. The the word, the English word propitiation is used multiple times in a good English translation. Uh, In in the ESV translation, for instance, that we use. Uh, Romans 3, our call to worship this morning is one such place where, where Paul uses this word. He says in verse 25, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. 
Uh, Propitiation entails the absorbing of God's wrath. It, It entails the satisfaction of God's wrath. It entails God's wrath being poured out, never to return back to him. And so the New Testament teaches that when the perfect, holy Jesus died, he was taking the wrath of God that we deserved upon himself. So again, God could never gather it back up to himself, but unleash it never to have it again for all eternity. The gospel of Jesus is not, God is not angry with you. It's this, God can never get angry with you again. God the son is in heaven right now. He is presenting to the judge his scars and he is advocating for you. God the Father is in heaven right now and his heart is filled with delight for you. And he is dreaming about the future he has for you in this life and in the life to come. God the Holy Spirit is inside of you. And right now at the deepest part of your being, he is reminding you and bearing witness to you, you're a child of God's. You can never be plucked from his hand. The good news of Jesus Christ is not God is not angry with you right now. It is God can never get angry with you again. Now, I told you before that there is evidence. I alluded to the fact before that there is evidence in Psalm 85 that there will be an ultimate resolution. So again, the first nine verses of Psalm 85 sort of presume that God is gonna respond. He is going to deliver his people in the here and now. He is going to remove his wrath in the here and now. But if you look down uh, at verses 10 through 13, you're gonna see uh, what, what most commentators believe is this prophetic look forward to the time that God's ultimate resolution is found in Jesus Christ. Uh, commentators will tell you that in verses 10 through 13, this is what they call a prophetic present. What that means is that a prophecy is written uh, in the present tense because the author is so sure that it's gonna happen. Look at verse 10. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Uh, It is kind of lost on us based on the English words, but in the Hebrew, these words aren't ordinarily thought to be together, certainly not kissing one another. There's a little bit of shock in this in the original Hebrew language, but it's kind of lost on us in the English. Uh, Steadfast love and faithfulness, uh, these are two attributes of God that you're gonna see in the Old Testament paired together over and over and over. And there is a tension in this pairing of attributes. Uh, Again, the original audience would have caught this. This is somewhat lost on us. Listen to this. God's attribute of steadfast love in the Old Testament Hebrew is something like the words of mercy and grace smushed together in the New Testament. Steadfast love is God's commitment to treat us with covenantal, unconditional love. Uh, God's uh, attribute of faithfulness is best uh, understood in the English as promise keeper. Not just faithful to his people, but God faithful to himself and faithful to his promises. And so the Old Testament believers being much more familiar with the Old Testament than we are, are, they would hear God's faithful to his promises and they would say, well, on the one hand, that means God has to forgive sinners because he promised he would. Uh, He'll forgive them when they repent. But on the other hand, God promised that in wrath, he will punish every sin. 
And so when an Israelite heard God is both steadfast love and faithfulness, God is both peace and righteousness, that is, he is both relationship and absolute purity, they would say, how? How with me? How can that be? I can see how God can be one of those at a time and and one of those at another time, but how can God be both of those at the same time? Jesus. That's the only way. I mean, the cross is that place where steadfast love and promise keeping meet. It is that place where grace and justice collide. Jesus dies, we live. Paul is alluding to this again in our call to worship in Romans 3. He he says this, God is both just and the justifier. That is to say, God punishes sin, he is just. But in the gospel, God declares us righteous. He's the justifier. And so Psalm 85 is first, the ultimate tension in a human's life brought about by the biblical reality of God's wrath. But second, Psalm 85 is the ultimate resolution of that wrath, or at least it it points to the the ultimate resolution of that tension, excuse me, which is brought about uh, in the absorbing of God's wrath by Jesus on the cross. Third, the ultimate response to that resolution is this. This is the ultimate response in our lives. Perpetual rejoicing in that ultimate resolution, even while we experience other points of tension in this life. I'll say that again. Perpetual rejoicing in that ultimate resolution, even while we experience other points of tension in this life. Look at verse six. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice be glad, celebrate in you. So take yourself back to the beginning. Think about the rest and the relaxation and the rejoicing that ensues when a temporal tension is favorably resolved. So think about a tension from your life this week, uh, a drama, a suspense where there was a favorable resolution. What does it feel like when that happens? And with that said, and with that in your mind, What kind of relaxing, resting, and rejoicing should ensue in light of this ultimate tension being favorably resolved in Jesus Christ? Feasting and dancing, to say the least. My goal is that some of us, uh, I'm sorry, my, my guess is that some of us in the sermon introduction were kind of hooked We were kind of hoping that we'd spend more time today talking about these various points of tension. My my thought is that some of us may have have hoped that we would talk about these places of drama in in our lives. And my guess is that some of us identified a tension right away. Uh, Some of us thought about a drama in our lives uh, that we want resolved. And we were kind of hoping that this would be one of those sermons where where we would get pointers on how to have a favorable outcome uh, of that tension. And so maybe you're like me and you thought, I have a leaky fridge. I have some health concerns. I have some conflict in some relationships. I've been hoping for that promotion. I want Tiger Woods to win the golf tournament today with a birdie putt on the 18th. And maybe you thought today, I'm gonna learn how to get a favorable resolution so I can lowercase r relax, lowercase r rest, lowercase r rejoice. 
But unfortunately, the Bible isn't particularly concerned about helping us move from success to success in this life. The Bible is not particularly concerned about us moving from favorable resolution to favorable resolution in temporal tensions. Tensions in the here and now. The Bible is very concerned to tell of the story and to continually emphasize the gospel and to continually preach Jesus as the ultimate resolution to the ultimate tension. Hear this, so that we can find ultimate and eternal joy in each and every circumstance. We all have tension, we all have drama, we all have uncertainty. There are things that are temporal that are screaming for our hearts and minds' attention. All of us have the number one tension in the forefront of our mind right now. What would it look like to first and foremost, first and foremost have joy in the gospel as we enter into that tension? What would it look like for us in that place to already be experiencing capital R relaxation, capital R rest, capital R rejoicing? You see, that's the gospel. The gospel invites us to live every moment of our lives relaxing, resting, and rejoicing. My mind, of course, thinks of the apostle Paul and what he writes to the Philippians in Philippians 4.4. 4. He, he writes this, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Most commentators believe that Psalm 85 is in Paul's mind, not because rejoicing in the Lord is unique to the New Testament, but it's quite unique in the Old Testament. And so most commentators think that when Paul writes uh, Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always, again, I say rejoice, they, they think he might be thinking of Psalm 85.6. Don't, don't forget the circumstance of Paul's life when he writes to the believers in Philippi. He's in prison awaiting trial. At any moment, he could come up on the judge's docket. And within a few moments after being with the judge, he will either be set free to live the rest of his life on earth or he'll be condemned to death and he will die within a few short minutes. That feels like drama. That feels like tension. That feels like uncertainty. But Paul says in verse five of chapter four in Philippians, it's always reasonable to be rejoicing in the gospel. In a moment, we're gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And the Lord's Supper is, among other things, a celebration of this beautiful truth that through his body and his blood, Jesus resolved this ultimate tension in the believer's life. And because of that, we move out from here today resting and relaxing and rejoicing, regardless of what comes our way this week. Religion says, enter into this place and earn yourself some rest and some good fortune. The gospel says, when you come into this place, entering it doesn't get you anything. You come to this place to be reminded of what you already have. And you enter into this week ready to rejoice regardless of what happens. Let's pray. Most gracious God and heavenly father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that, uh, that our children, as young as they are, can understand it. And that we as uh, adults find ourselves forgetting it, misunderstanding it, misapplying it uh, all the time.
We thank you, Jesus, that it's as simple as you lived and died for us, and now you've been raised again. It's as simple as that, and yet it's as beautiful and comprehensive and, in a sense, complex to meet us in every nook and cranny of our lives. Uh, We thank you that regardless of how well we're enjoying it, we have in you the opportunity to rejoice and relax and rest. And we thank you that you send us out into this week with this peace of mind and this peace in our hearts that will allow us to love well and be faithful to you wherever we go. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be giving us this joy, that you would protect this joy in our hearts, that you would not allow the enemy uh, to take this joy from us and bewitch us. We pray uh, that you would take the gospel and make it radioactive in our hearts, that our thoughts and our words and our deeds come from this secure place. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus.